Hi, everybody. It is, uh, let's see, it is the 12th of May, 2022, and it's time for, I think it's episode 115 of my live chat. This is the Luke Thomas live chat. I am your host, of course, Luke Thomas. Thank you so much for watching. We will go for about an hour today. Um, if you put in a donation in the super chat, your questions or your comments will get priority at the end of the free hour, so to speak. And of course, if you might be new here, you're like, oh, it's kind of silly to pay you to ask you questions. Yes, it is. It's more just if you'd like to give a donation, you may. And if you want to attach a question to it, you may as well. Certainly you're not required to do any of those things, but if you'd like to, I'd be happy to take it. All right. Uh, let's see. First of all, let's put this on. Let's see right there. Uh, thumbs up on the video if you're new here, you've been around for a while and you haven't. Um, subscribe, please, if you'd be so kind. I'd really appreciate that as well. I saw on some of the questions, I took a quick peek at them, and they were about roughly a lot of UFC 274 leftovers, which is kind of interesting. So we'll see what comes up in the algorithm. I'm going to try to give priority to the ones that have the most amount of likes, um, no matter where they are in the lineup. So I'm going to try that. We'll see how that goes. But... Um, you get the idea. Okay, without further ado, let's get going. And we're back. All right. Let me turn this, uh, let's get the questions up. Hope you guys are doing well. You might, you might be asking, Luke, you didn't put the last two weeks up. Um, right, the audio quality was really bad, which I know you're like, oh, we don't really care. Or some people say they don't care, but I care. And so for those reasons, I couldn't put it up. But today, it should be just fine. Should be just fine. Let me turn this up a little bit for you. That might be a little bit better. Let's see. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Let's go. First question. Okay. What percentage of the fault is on Rose slash Carla for how bad that fight was? I personally put at least 80% of the fault on Rose, mainly because Rose clearly had the far superior footwork. Well, she had the prettier footwork. I don't know how superior it was. I mean, she lost the fight. Distance management and control of the range. And she used these advantages to avoid engaging for the entire fight. That's not quite true, but mostly true. On top of that, Rose also allowed that her defensive wrestling was better than Carla's offensive wrestling. Um, and and use that advantage to, again, disengage and avoid fighting. At least Carla actually tried to attack, so she shot 11 takedowns. Yeah, she only got two of them. Um, and I think Rose was credited with one at the end of the fifth. I mean, listen, I, there's a question of, like, you know, whose footwork was better. Certainly you would argue that Rose was a little bit more nimble on her feet, more active with her footwork. It certainly was prettier to look at, right? Sort of the angle she's cutting... Sort of the sort of the S-shaped motion that you kind of saw um, a lot of times, you know, circling out at at uh, not in straight lines at an angle. Like there was a lot of that part that I agree was quite good. But like, if what we're asking is how good is footwork as a function of winning fights, right? So in this case, what did the footwork do for you um, that put you either in a position to land meaningful offense or avoid meaningful defense? Okay, she avoided meaningful defense. But it never really seemed for the most part, I mean, again, there's going to be a few exceptions throughout the course of 25 minutes, but for the most part, it did not really, it was, or I should say it was not used in such a way that enabled meaningful offense. So how good is the footwork then, right? I mean, it can look nice and it can look like it's by somebody who clearly knows what they're doing, but if it's never used in any kind of context that matches what the judges are looking for to adjudicate 
who gets a 10, who gets a 9, or an 8, or whatever, and it puts you on the side of getting the 9 most of the time, or at least enough to lose the fight, then what difference does it make? So when you say, like, it looked, it, it, you know, it, she had the far superior footwork, I would really question the premises of that. She had prettier footwork, she had more active footwork, and she had fantastic footwork as a function of making um, helpful real defense. But in terms of using footwork to set up angles to strike or to close distance or to, you know, put her in a position to, again, launch meaningful offense, why would you say her offense was far superior? I would not say that at all, you know? So you're asking who does the blame fall on? I mean, you know, it would have to fall on both competitors more than anyone else. But then again, you would, this seems relatively obvious that you would then look at the coaches, the strategy, who cooked it up, who executed it. Um, but I would really question the way you frame the, 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 the footwork consideration there. Uh, Luke, how do you see the Oliveira versus Makachev fight playing out? In my view, Makachev is clearly tough, the, excuse me, is clearly the toughest matchup for Oliveira in the top five. Many fans who aren't really into the grappling side of MMA seem to have collectively decided that Charles has some kind of devastating guard game at the highest level. If you go into his guard, you're automatically dead to rights or so it is believed. But in reality, we have seen Paul Felder control ground and pound and TKO Oliveira from guard. And even more recently, Kevin Lee having plenty of success controlling and ground and pound from guard, even while gassing out. Islam is worlds better than both Lee and Felder, this person writes, when it comes to top control and just grappling, period. Yeah, I think, I think, I, I, I recall saying that I thought that like, um, well, I, I'll leave that point to the side, but. I don't know that this really is going to be a consideration of having to fight from guard. Now, Oliveira may elect to take it there, in which case, yes, it will be. But I have a feeling that the positions that Islam is going to be looking for really don't involve that or really any kind of situation where there is a substantial threat of submissions, right? I tend to think they're going to look for the positions that they always look for, which is uh, some kind of wrestling ride, turtle position, the back itself, um, some version of the back with the wrist control or, you know, um, the like. Now, again, Oliveira is going to know that. So, you know, if he constantly rolls into guard to avoid having his wrist captured and then his posture broken and then eating ground and pound where Islam puts in one hook to control the position, right? Like that, he, he obviously clearly want to avoid that and would probably just rather play guard in those scenarios. But the first thing I would say is, like, Islam and, and his team are going to be looking to set up scenarios where they're, they don't have to worry about that. Um, and then again, to the extent that they have to worry about it, I, I would actually agree with you a little bit. I, I You know, listen, it's hard to submit anyone good from guard. That's true both in regular jiu-jitsu and in, um, in MMA. It's hard to use the guard for... Um, a real difference maker in securing submissions at the very highest level. People tend to think that, that means that the guard is useless or overvalued or something else like that. That is not the claim that I'm making. A, submissions are possible, especially when you hurt them first. B, even if you don't get the submissions, if you can attempt to threaten them, which by itself will count in the eyes of judges, or in the course of threatening them, you're controlling posture, you're minimizing their ground and pound, Right, you're doing other things that make the fight doable. 
um, then that's valuable as well. In fact, it could have a ton of benefits, offensive and defense. You could use the guard to sweep or to create space to then stand. Like the guard is quite valuable, but as a mechanism to you know reliably secure submission, yes, of course, it has a lot of value there too. But in the very highest levels, and certainly you would agree that Oliveira and Islam occupy that space in mixed martial arts at 155 pounds. It's actually quite rare. And in, you know, in black belt jiu-jitsu, you just don't see a lot of people working closed guard and then, you know, open guard, I suppose, right? But you, know, you just don't see a lot of arm bars from the guard. You'll see, you know, triangles too are pretty rare, quite actually. You, what you see is a lot of, you know, guys winning on advantages, taking the back, passing guard once, um, foot locks, you know, that kind of a thing. Like whether it's like knee or whether it's leg entanglement at the jiu-jitsu level, you don't really see a lot of the kind the kind of things you're talking about there. So I think it'd be foolish to spend all of your time playing in Oliveira's guard unless it's going really, really well for you. But I do think that like I've said it before, like, you know, trying to avoid fights with Oliveira by taking it one way or the other, um, it doesn't really work. You kind of have to meet him everywhere he goes. And that includes and certainly would not be limited to the ground. And on the ground you kinda you cannot avoid you like you have to go right into it. And then from there, begin to do work. And it actually turns out that, like, you know, his guard is not to be trifled with. But if you're very, very good, if you're very precise and you don't make a lot of errors in the way that Islam does, uh, then then you begin to put him at, like, real contextual disadvantages. Arm bars from that position are hard. Triangles from that position are difficult. Again, against elite opposition. It's very, very rare. Very, very rare. You don't see a lot of world titles being handed over with triangles. Um, it does happen. It's not altogether unheard of, but it's it's not common. There's a reason for that. Attacking people from the guard who are very, very good at submission defense is is difficult. Thought. The UFC is 1,000% throwing Gon a bone with his scheduled bout against Tuivasa. Why, this person writes. Gon is perceived by casuals as a boring fighter. To draw eyes, he needs a fight against someone exciting. As a result, the UFC is trying to grow Gon's exposure to the casual MMA fan base at the sacrifice of Tuivasa. Um, I tend to think they probably offered fights in a few different directions, and this is the way they ended up. I don't really see that. I mean, I know the line of thinking that you're writing is coherent. It's a coherent thought. I just and and especially the part where they're trying to do Gon a solid. Maybe there's something to that, but I don't think that they really believe that they're sacrificing Tuivasa, who's 29 years old or something like that. Yeah, I don't think that they believe that they are. I would argue that they're not. I would I would have preferred to see Aspinall against Tuivasa and then Blades against Gan, but I guess they want to give Aspinall the Blades test. Um because they see him as the guy who might be challenging for the title next if he passes that. Like, they really have their sights set on, you beat this guy, we're going to give you a title shot. Seems to me like the way he dispatched Volkov, that's that's what they're looking at. And so, um, everything else kind of falls into line a little bit after that. Plus, what, what did the matchmakers attempt that they said no to that they then had to come back with? Again, I'm hearing that the UFC matchmakers, I wouldn't call it struggling to make fights, but... Um, having to go through several iterations of offers more often than they used to to get fights made. Uh, that I have heard from a nu numerous folks. Um, 
not as easy to make them as they used to be. So anytime you see a fight, you're like, huh, I would have liked it this way a little bit differently. They probably would have too. You know. If you could take any pre-UFC 100 champion in their prime and drop them into today's roster, do you think any of them could have be a modern champion? Probably St. Pierre. Maybe Silva. Maybe Silva. Um, but that's probably it, right? I don't think Couture would be a champion in the modern era. Although, you know, he, he might be competitive, certainly. But I don't think he'd be a champion. Um, was BJ Penn champion or Sean Shirk champion at UFC 100? I can't even remember. But either way, no. Although Prime Penn, maybe. But still, like, he was flaky, too, even at his best. Um, I guess Aldo was in the WEC. They hadn't brought him over yet. That doesn't really count. Anyway, he lost to Max um, by that point. Anyway, um, yeah, probably just those two. Probably just those two. And then the real, one I would really only have confidence in would be St. Pierre. St. Pierre, I think, would be champion again. If he were, like, totally in his prime, like, dialed in. Not, not you know, not... Burnt out. He got really burnt out there at the end of that, but before, but by the time the Hendricks fight rolled around. Look, what do you make of Oliveira? Pretty clearly avoiding the Makachev fight. Not only has Oliveira said Islam doesn't currently deserve a title shot, but he also said that if Islam beats Dariush, it still wouldn't be enough and that he would need another win. Which is so absurd that it has a large part of the MMA community labeling it as blatant ducking. It might be. It might be. But dude, if you're a Charles Oliveira, the question is not could he win. The, the question is um, what's in his best interest. In his best interest, it's the most amount of money and the least amount of challenge. Dude, what does Islam Makachev do to get you that? <clears throat> not much. Now, if it was a title fight, you know, then you get your points, I suppose. Although, I guess in his next one, he's, I don't know if he will get points in the next one. He got him in this one. We'll see if he gets him in the next one. But there's a chance he does it until he captures the title. So, that's the first part. And then the second part is, dude, Islam Makachev is tough as shit to beat. Doesn't do anything for him. This is why it's hard to make fights in boxing, too, sometimes. Because you really have to incentivize it for these guys. There has to be something special. Either they internally want it. It's a mandatory challenge that's ordered by the sanctioning bodies. They make it financially worth their while by whatever mechanism possible. But, you know, why is it so hard to get Spence and Crawford to fight? Well, there's a lot of complicating factors um, up to this point, not least of which is that they've been on different networks with different promoters, and so that makes it quite difficult. But, you know, we'll see now that he is free and he is saying he wants Spence and the only place to do that is the PBC. I guess we'll see how that goes. But the reality is that, yeah, like you uh, – like, just think about it rationally. Your interest is not in pleasing the fans. Uh, I mean, on some level, they can align that way, and, and to, at certain times, that can be quite valuable. But the truth is, dude, they they want easy fights. Um, <laughs> that's a better. It's better for them to have easier fights. You can't get away from that. Some guys don't want that. Some guys want the acclaim of having tough fights, um, win or lose, like an RDA or now at this point Gilbert Burns sort of saying something like that. And that's fine. Like that, whatever they want is is fine. But if you're talking about somebody who's now at their peak of their earning potential, and when I say peak, I don't mean like the next one they drop off. I just mean this is the chapter in their life where they're probably going to make the most amount of money. Um, they want to make sure that they can that can last as long as possible. It is only rational 
you can call it cowardly if you want. I think if you prize fight for a living and you have a claim as being the best guy on earth, you should be, for the most part, um, free of charges that you are cowardly avoiding the fight. However, however, if you wanted to argue that you know, this guy is trying to avoid a more difficult fight for an easier fight, I mean, I think it's quite obvious that's true. Calling out Conor McGregor and stuff like that, like... Yeah, that's that's exactly what he's trying to do. I think you know, for me, I only get upset at it when it becomes um, chronic, or it really gets in the way of a very, a very important fight that has to happen in the weight class. Um, I would agree, Makachev is an important fight that should happen in the weight class. But if it doesn't happen next because they give it to Connor and then Darius fights Islam and you know, let's say Islam wins that, then you know he avoids it after that. Okay, then I would I would be probably a little more frustrated than you guys. But for me, I just sort of look at it quite rationally. It is entirely rational that he would want to avoid it. Um, doesn't mean you have to like it. Doesn't mean you have to agree with it. Doesn't mean he'll get his way either. And if it goes on for long enough, you are certainly welcome, I think, to really hammer them for it. And like at some point, you know, you do have to defend against the person most deserving. They are they have earned that opportunity, and you can't simply run from that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Let's see if he gets McGregor. But in the end, dude, all of this hemming and hawing, like. Oh, I want this and I don't want that. Like, you know, they don't have a lot of leverage. They can say no, but there are consequences to saying no. So let's see what they come up with. I would agree that he probably is trying to avoid a more difficult fight, but he also has some good reasons to avoid a more difficult fight. And given the way that pay is structured, and the only way to really get it is if you're around that championship belt and they want you to go up against a guy who doesn't have a huge fan base, but is very difficult to beat. Yeah, I would want to fight someone else too. Luke, I have a question and comment about your statement. If you only watch UFC, you aren't an MMA fan. You're a UFC fan. I don't have any issue with this comment by itself, but I believe you would consider yourself a soccer fan. Yeah. Yeah. But I only really hear you talking about DC United or Real Madrid. I think you would consider yourself a football fan, but I never hear you talk about the CFL. Fuck is CFL. My question is, when you say the above statement, are you implying there's a difference between the examples I'm bringing up? Am I wrong for that for inferring that you consider yourself a fan of those sports? Do you actually watch all the different leagues in various sports, or are you being hypocritical and being up this narrative? Well, like for example, I don't. I mean, I'll watch the NBA playoffs, but like during the regular season, I don't really watch anybody except who the Wizards are playing, and I don't really know what I'm going to do this Commander season because I detest the ownership in ways that are hard to explain. But, um. If I do watch games, it will only be who the commanders play until the playoffs and then, you know, whatever happens in the playoffs. DC United is my home team. If I watch um, Major League Soccer, then I only really watch who DC United is playing and I don't really watch the other ones. I mean, on some level, it's just a question of time. Um, but for soccer itself, I don't think that it operates under the same model as MMA. I mean, there are some meaningful differences. Uh, the other part is... Madrid is part of the Champions League, so they play the other teams in Europe, so it's not strictly La Liga, although I typically watch only who Real Madrid is playing. Um, but yeah, like if someone wanted to say, well, you're only really a fan of those teams, you're not really a soccer fan. I mean, I guess I wouldn't really argue with them. I'm not sure what that would show exactly. I don't know how people have time to just watch all Premier League teams or all Premier League games or all MLS games. I mean, at some point, you have to make a call, a call about there's 24 hours in a day. What can you really watch? And what really matters to you. And so at the end of the day, if you can only really watch UFC, that's fine. 
I think the point I would make, though, and this is less true than it used to be, but this is still quite true. The reason why you would want to watch other MMA is not just because there are good fighters and good fights that happen, but that they don't look and feel like UFC. Like when you watch one, especially with the way that which they've got these like Muay Thai fights, kickboxing fights with MMA gloves in a cage. Granted, that's not MMA, but it looks a lot like MMA if you didn't know the rule set. You might even imagine for a time it is MMA, but it's certainly a rule experimentation, and they don't use the 10-point must system, in my, to, in my view, quite rightly. Um, I think their system is superior, and I've said it many, many times. You actually get a different product is the point I'm trying to make. Now, PFL and Bellator, I think, to some extent, struggle at differentiation, especially now that PFL has like a bunch of non-turny fights and Bellator has a bunch of turny fights. There is a lot between PFL and, and Bellator, frankly, in my view, that is indistinguishable. Now, their production looks quite different, but as a product, you know, how much can you really say there's a meaningful alternative? On that level, I would actually say PFL is a big one. But you have to imagine, like, this used to be very pronounced and very true when there was pride and it was an organization that at the time, for, for much of its time, it was bigger than UFC and it was in a ring and it was like a huge ring. It wasn't like a real boxing ring. It was this gigantic ring and they had 10 minute first rounds and no weight classes um where they had weight classes but they would have open weight fights for example and like all kinds of different I mean, there was real alternative so i get that there's less of that now i truly get that but i also believe that like you know with bellator's rounded cage a finely attuned mma fan is going to understand the differences and what kind of role this plays in the fight so they're going to want to see that out or they're going to want to see what it's like to be in the hawaiian market or with pfl they're going to want to see how a tournament works in the way in which they construct it and blah 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 blah. they're meaningful less so than it used to be but they're meaningful differences between the ufc experience and theirs even if it's a lesser experience in terms of the grandiosity and scale of it all and i would say if you're an mma fan um a, a genuine MMA fan, it's it's less of having to ask people to watch those things and more just an expectation um, because what you really love is this... Dude, MMA at its core, if you've really have been watching it for a long time, is wild and insane and in many ways untamable. The UFC product feels a little tamed. Um, and in, through that taming, it can be scaled, and so there's benefits to that as well. But... Um, I would say like you lose a little bit. You lose a little bit just watching UFC. Even though those are the, the best fights typically, the ones with the most stakes typically and the best fighters typically, there's still a little bit of um, the creative individual uh, expression that you see in fights um, that, that the UFC just couldn't manufacture by itself. I suppose you could make similar arguments about other, you know, other leagues in basketball or other leagues in soccer, and you could probably make similar statements. Again, if someone said I was only a Madrid or DC United fan, I'd be like, yeah, it's, I mean, that's not altogether untrue. Um, uh, less so on the Real Madrid side, because again, if they didn't make it, I would still watch the Champions League final, but I'm not going to watch the MLS final unless DC United is in it. But, uh, but. Um, say bump up the volume a little bit yeah i did i did i bumped it up um so that's how i would answer it is just is something is lost in mma if you're even if you look at the very best version of it you're not getting the full experience um it's hard for me to believe that i could watch you know the champions league and then one of the domestic uh, major leagues and then someone could come to me and be like, oh, but you don't watch MLS, you're missing something. Maybe that's true. I don't know enough about soccer to say that's true or not. 
But I'm a little skeptical of that claim. Although I suppose if I watch Bundesliga or the French leagues, which I don't really respect all that much, maybe that'd be truer. Uh, hey Luke, episode 111 of the live chat ended with a question for me about my father and him having stage 4 cancer. Yes, I remember. April 29th, he finally lost his fight. Damn. If it wasn't for you and your advice, MK content and live chats, I truly feel lost. Well, I, I, I appreciate the kind sentiment, although I suspect that there's very little someone in my position could, um, sadly, could do. But I, if you feel that way, then I'm glad to hear it. I appreciate you and everything you've done. Even though my pops is gone, I still feel I have something to live for, which I'm very glad to hear. Much love. Yes. Well, again, I'm very, very sorry to hear this. Although, I will say that as difficult as the passing is, um, you know, the the healing can only begin once it takes place. You know, I, I hate to say, I, I hate to put it in terms as as stark and as difficult as that because we all want nothing more than to have our loved ones back. Believe me, I understand that feeling. But at the same time, if you're really trying to heal, that process can't really kick into high gear until there is some finality about the 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 moment and the situation. So I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, it's a long road back. You know, it's a long road back. I'm not going to tell you it's not. It's a long uphill climb. But you can do it and you will do it. And you will, um, the sun will rise in your life again. It will rise in your life again. Maybe not today. You know, maybe not for a while, to be quite honest with you. I don't know. We'll have to see how it goes. But the sun will rise in your life again. The things that have brought you joy, they will bring you joy again. And new things will also bring you joy just remember that whatever state you're in, and again, I'm glad to hear that you suggest I have helped. You must remember, and even though it doesn't feel this way, it feels almost impossible. I suspect on some level, you must remember you will feel you will feel good again, eventually. That doesn't mean that this won't hurt, but trust me when I tell you, you will have better days ahead. It's possible, and it's real, and it will happen. Uh, Luke, is there a historical precedent? For a fighter taking the same or equivalent level of damage that Tony has and being able to work their way back to the top. Is it hard to watch someone take that kind of damage and keep coming back for more? The Gaethje fight really seems to have changed him. I've always heard people say that time is undefeated, but it's crazy to actually see this proverb unfold for a fighter whose career I've followed for years. Thanks so much for everything you do. We love you, big man. Well, I would love to see what happens, first of all. Again, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of inclination by some and, and, and a desire by some to suggest that, um, you know, Tony can't get back. I would say that the, you guys have heard me say it, the, the greater context is not in his favor, which is to say 38 years old at 155 pounds is not going to be the best place. Again, there are exceptions. We just saw Maso Renduba up at 170 at 43 look pretty good, actually, relative to his peak. Um, the, the problem for Tony is that if he's able to make some kind of comeback, it's, you know, um, first of all, that's a big if. And then second of all, like, it's pretty clear that whatever state he's at now is is a is a major drop-off from where he was previously. Um, I would say that I think, okay, so let's, this is the one I always bring up, right? The David Loazzo example after he fought Rich Franklin. I've been warning, I, it's funny, man. Let me just say something. There is this tendency in MMA commentary, people in my job, people who call fights, um, people who have to like kind of comment or prognosticate depending on their betting podcast or whatever. A lot of people do this. In MMA, there is a real desire to not tell the audience the truth. 
Now, that's different from having a hesitation because you don't know what the truth is and you want to be cautious about it. That part I am totally in favor of, right? But I guarantee you if Tony gets back out there in the next fight, pay attention to what folks say about him. It would be fine to say things like, um, if anyone is capable of making a comeback and has the kind of mental resilience necessary to do so, given such difficult circumstances, that Tony Ferguson would be that guy. We do not yet have clear on definitive proof that a comeback is not possible. And depending on the matchup, it might be entirely winnable. He did, in fact, look good against Michael Chandler in the first round. I wouldn't object to any of that, but like they will omit a lot. They will omit the fact that being 38 at 155 is not going to, that, that, that metric is not going to correspond with success. That there is the four fight losing streak that has shown to him to be vulnerable in ways that we had previously um, thought if not unimaginable, extremely unlikely. And that the losing streak itself carries with it the damage from all the fights, in particular the Gaethje fight, getting his limbs bent against Charles Oliveira, and of course this last knockout against um, Michael Chandler. Like The accumulative weight of all of that has to be acknowledged as well. And people always, it's like fucking Groundhog Day. There are always these folks out there who, are, who just pretend that that's not part of the story. Dude, it, the, all of it is part of the story. You should you should very much, and I will, and I hope you will have as well, some humility about what we think we know will happen. There's a lot of uh, eagerness to say either there's nothing happening here or he's done. Well, I'm not sure it's either of those, but what I would say is that the current trend tells you that A, things have already gone off the rails, and then B, just to get, to, to, to get back where he is is going to be a, a real Herculean effort. Is it possible? Sure. Sure, it is possible. Um, but it's going to be a Herculean effort. So the first thing I want to point out is there's a culture in MMA where we don't want to offend fighters because we have such respect for what they're doing. And you should that they want to be as, you know, and I don't mind being euphemistic, but euphemistic to the point of basically omitting the truth is not, you're not doing anybody any favors that way. Lying about the situation or just omitting things that are difficult or uncomfortable is not okay, and there's a huge culture of it in MMA for fear of upsetting people, which I understand, but ultimately I don't really agree with. The second thing I'd say is, um, if you go back to the David Loazzo example with Rich Franklin, it is my, my opinion that he clearly um, uh, got changed in that contest. However, it wasn't like he was unable to win fights after that. He was able to win fights. He just was never the same. Right, And we all know sort of the anecdote that Teddy Atlas always talks about, about leaving a piece of yourself. The difference would be in a beating, you leave a, um, a chunk, a part of Humpty Dumpty that cannot be put back together. It doesn't mean you can't win ever again, but it does mean that what you were is verifiably gone. My hunch is that's probably true. So it, this is really a question of like, like, look at Jim Miller. Like Jim Miller is not fighting the top of that division. And if he was, I wonder if he'd be getting slept like that. But we don't have this conversation around Jim because the matchmaking is much more attuned to the stage of the game that he's in. Tony hasn't had that adjustment. I don't know if he wants that adjustment. It's entirely up to him. So there's a question of when he comes back against who, what happens in the intervening um, space, and, and, and we'll make a, a determination from there. But what I would argue is... It's the old If you've never taken economics, then this will be new to you. But for those of you who have, you'll remember this from Econ 101. There is no such thing as a free lunch. 
There's no such thing as a free lunch. I don't care how tough you are or how tough you think you are. You take a beating the way in which Tony took one, which is incredible that he even withstood it. But you take one like that, you're not going to be the same afterwards. doesn't matter who you are. The human body cannot respond to that kind of trauma with, that wasn't anything. It, 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 carries, it carries all manner of implications for your brain, for your body, for your organ health, for your sense of competition, for your appetite for it, for your, uh, you know, your willingness to endure difficulty, from what, you, what your body can even tolerate as difficulty. All of it gets compromised, both the things you consent to and the things you don't. All of it gets changed. It's you, you, your, your body is a fragile, finite thing. You have to take care of it to the extent possible. And then what that means for different people in different circumstances and different lines of work, we all have to make that choice. And there's no real one easy answer. There are some more intelligent use cases and there are some less ones. Um, and in terms of accepting damage, fighting is inherently a non-intelligent use case. However, when you begin to realize that there are ways to do it for short amounts of time, for potentially large amounts of money, then the equation begins to change. But you just, like, I, I really hope people understand this. This is why preventative commission uh, screening is uh, for health is important. This is why referees stopping fights on time is important. This is why corners not letting fights go on is important. This is why fighter pay really matters because all it takes is one fight where you're too tough for your own good. The opponent is just way better and the, the punishment keeps on going and everyone says, oh, they're tough, just let it go. Well, now where are you? Now you have suffered, in this case, all of that damage. He has been not been given easy fights whatsoever. One hammer after the other, which has only compounded the misery to the point now where he's getting put out in fights in ways that never happened. And I'm not sure he made the money that he was supposed to. I certainly hope that he did. He was entitled to it. If anything, I'm sure he is underpaid. But the question is, did it happen or did it not? Like, folks, these issues matter. They matter. They're not a function of just like, Oh, a guy took a little too much abuse on one night. One night can, in the the accumulative sense, one night can just derail everything, especially at the later stage of someone's career when they're much more vulnerable for these kinds of things. You don't get it back. You don't get it back. (laughs) You know? So uh, let's see who they give him. Like, do I think he can beat other UFC fighters? I absolutely think that. I'm sure of it. I I know he can. I know he can. Um, that part to me is not really a mystery, but do I think that he can get back to whatever he was the night before the Gaethje fight? No, I don't think those days are possible. What that all means, we'll have to see. Luke, in your reaction video to the latest card, you made a Snow Goons reference and now Sean Price. I see you're a man of the culture. Top five hip hop albums. I don't know if I have a very good choice of hip hop albums. I only like what I like. I'm actually going to a concert tonight. Uh, yeah. Um, um, again, I'm not, this is not like an, this is not like Luke's list of the five best albums. These are just the ones I like the most. Um, 36 Chambers, Wu-Tang Clan. Um, I'll say Monkey Bars, Sean Price. 
I'll say uh, Cameron Purple Haze. I'll say Vinny Paz, God of the Serengeti. And like, what's another album that I've just really just burned front to back? Um, bumping a lot of Fat Trell these days. Shouts to Fat Trell, who's in jail, unfortunately. Um, what's another album that I've just really gone over? Shit, man. Any of the Army of the Pharaoh albums. You know what I mean? <laughs> Any of those. Um, I'd put it something like that. Those first four are the ones that really... I mean... Nas is Illmatic, you know, I was around for the, the Chronic, was, I mean, these are huge albums that I've, like, listened to beginning to end, so something like that, something like that. I've got one, I was looking at this, I've got one Eminem song in my workout playlist, it's the one from his album prior to the Slim Shady LP, um, it, uh, it's, it's the Welcome Back to the Stage, What's the, how's that song go? There you go. All right. Luke, now that Gaethje has shown something of an Achilles heel in terms of his defense against... I, I like Eminem, by the way. All right. Well, hold on. I don't like him anymore. I think his recent shit is terrible and hasn't been good for a long time. His first two, maybe you could argue three albums on Interscope, like the, so Slim Shady, Marshall Mathers, and Eminem Show, or no, what, what was the, whatever the third one was. Um, you know, this looks like a job for me, that album. You could maybe dig into that album. First two albums are masterpieces. I mean, they're incredible, right? Uh, and like, you know, his some of his verses on like uh, on Renegade, uh, Renegades on with the Jay-Z or the one on Dead Wrong, like he was killing it at that time. But like the, the shit he puts out now and like the D12 stuff, it's like it's like he got had a religious conversion and all he puts out now is gospel music. It is as fucking vanilla and uninteresting. I got to tell you, I'm glad he got sober, but he didn't get more interesting. I can tell you that. He may have gotten sober. Good for him. That's good. I'm not not going to say bad about people getting sober. Trust me. <laughs> I know it's important. Uh but it did not make his art better. It made it significantly worse. Now that Gaethje has shown something of an Achilles heel in terms of his defense against proficient ground players, do you think that this could play to the plans of future opponents? To the extent that they can make it work, yes. Or does he still have enough of an advantage on the feet to maintain his place in the rankings? I mean, listen, uh, Habib beat him and is gone, so that threat doesn't matter. And then Charles Oliveira beat him, but Charles Oliveira is the best in the weight class for now. What does that have to do with the rest of the of the roster? He just beat Michael Chandler, who's right there. He beat Tony Ferguson, who was right there. Of course, there are some other guys to beat. Uh, to be clear, I mean, there's the Islam fights out there, depending on how things go, and Dariush, depending on how things go. They have the same manager, I believe, so I don't know if that's going to happen or not. But what you get the idea. Like, um, It's not like he had just fell off a cliff, but it does create a real ceiling. The first ceiling he hit was just on finding a way to like to not really fight strategically. Then he found a way to fight strategically, but the other limit that he now must encounter and reconcile is that he's put no effort, hardly at all, into developing his ground game. Now, that's not entirely true. As we know, his defensive wrestling is quite good. I'm sure his offensive wrestling is pretty good as well, though we don't really see much evidence of it, but I, I, you know, I tend to suspect that there's something there. But in terms of the submission defense game, it, pretty clearly he's not put in the, ne the necessary work to achieve the goals that he wants. And, uh, yeah, I think if anyone else can take advantage of that, they will. And, again, I'm going to go back to saying it one more time. The new thing in MMA, it's not so much new, but it's worth thinking about in a newer way, which is 
You don't really have to get the takedown anymore. You just have to create back exposure. Back exposure is really all you need. All they have to do on Justin Gaethje is create back exposure. How did Justin Gaethje get create give give up his back with Charles Oliveira? Go look at that punch Charles Oliveira threw after he knocked him down. It wasn't a real punch. He was just trying to find a way to snake his arm around the back. That's it. That's it. He didn't really even try to land it. It's just waiting for him to get up and then taking advantage of it. Or in the case of Habib, getting him to plant to create a stable structure, which then he could then take advantage of. All you have to do is create back exposure. Look at Aljamain Sterling with you know, with you know, Piotr Jan. Back exposure, back exposure, back exposure. That's all that matters. Getting a stable structure, creating back exposure, particularly back exposure when they're not standing on their feet, although getting that as well, but you know, with their hands planted, like get creating exposure, creating back exposure in a downed circumstance. Boy, if you can do that, you're off to the races. So can another fighter do that? Like Benil Dariush can probably do that. Now, will he? That's why they got to fight it out because Benil Dariush also fights a little crazy. So that'll be the thing. But, you know, is the bill coming due on not putting in the requisite work for that? I mean, on some level, you could argue the amount of extra work he put into everything else made him as good as he is. And this was a trade-off he had to make. And in fact, he achieved higher than he would have absent that other circumstance. Maybe that is true. That is an argument worth taking seriously. But it also, again, I'm going to go back to it. There's no such thing as a free lunch. If you don't really work on those parts of your game, the guys who do are going to eat you alive at this level. There is no place to hide at the highest level of MMA. There's no place to hide. You're going to get audited on some level. You have to have an answer for it. Let's see. Have you ever tried chocolate Twizzlers? No. Thoughts on how much less respectful we are to completely KO'd opponents in MMA. Tony suffered a horrific, scary KO when the film crew was just filming Chandler doing backflips with Tony's, excuse me, <clears throat> lifeless body laying in the background of the shot. I'm going to disagree with you. Hold on, I got to put, I have a nasocort for a nose that doesn't work properly. Hang on a second. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, okay. I used to use Afrin. Y'all want to know a story? This is true. I used to use Afrin like way, way, way more than you're supposed to. To the point where it was so bad that I wouldn't even get this way I would actually get the regular kind that you kind of squeeze the bottle and it comes out and I would turn it upside down and use it like a nose dropper to get the maximum amount and then I'd be sitting there you know an hour or two later nose would be open uh, and then blood would just start streaming out and I was like well that ain't normal so then I went to the doctor and I was like uh, yeah I'm having random nosebleed so they put a camera up there and they go first thing the guy asked was he was like do you use a lot of Afrin I go yeah he's like yep I can tell so he pulls the camera out and then shows me all the stuff that we saw in the video and basically explained to me that the Afrin had eaten a hole through the lining of the nose to the point where blood was just opening up because and pouring out because there's basically like, imagine having a scab wound and you're just peeling the scab off or something. It's, it's, it's sort of akin to that. So I had to go on like these like steroidal medicine to get off of it. Um, and so the, the, the lining of the nose could heal. It was, that was scary. And it wasn't like a little bit of blood, like it was a lot. There we go. That's fun. All right. Um, 
I'm going to disagree with the premise of the question about whether we are less respectful to KO'd opponents. Listen, the most important thing after a fighter gets KO'd is to make sure that the medical crew is quickly inside the octagon and quickly attending to the person who suffered the KO. I would submit to you, if you go back and you watch, that's exactly what happened. Okay, Michael Chandler doing the backflip in the way that he did is part of what happened. That is a huge win he scored. He didn't just score a win. He scored a win in devastating fashion and did so with a, with a strike that he is not even all that proficient with. He just found a way to use in this sort of moment of inspiration. And that's how he celebrated. This is part of human life. They should show that. They should show that. I don't want them sanitizing this any more than is necessary. Now, if someone is having a real medical ailment and um, they need to turn away for privacy considerations or respectability considerations, then that is fine. But at some point, that actually turns against the viewer because what I've, it used to be the case is guys, this is true, like it used to be the case where guys would get knocked out viciously on UFC broadcast, then you wouldn't hear anything about them. Like they would just be taken out of the octagon, sometimes stretchered, and there'd be no update on them on the broadcast. I don't want that either. Like there is transparency about this. Like if you get KO'd, now it's a medical thing. And now the audience needs to know that everything is above board. So part of it is like what actually happened, you should show. Um, and the reality is, and this is why the fight game is cruel, the more vicious it is that something happens to someone, the more we celebrate. They are exactly correlated. That's the game we're in, folks. If you're not, if you don't have the stomach for it, this ain't the sport for you. It doesn't mean it's like, yeah, fuck that guy. It's not what that means. But it's, it means like the execution of what you attempted is so glorious and the result of it is so incontestable. You know, person just goes limp to the canvas. Like, we celebrate that. We celebrate that as a thing to be celebrated. It's a joyous, um, you know, respectable and a thrilling moment for the winner. If you notice my reaction that everyone seemed to find <laughs> a little more enjoyable than I thought they would, but whatever, people, people seemed to find it, um, they liked it, when Tony got KO'd, you saw that reaction from me, like, oh my God. But then what was the first thing I said right after that? Like, I hope he's okay. It is both. You, I, I don't think we should police people's positive reactions to KOs. I really don't. Even if a person you don't like gets viciously KO'd and people are high-fiving, like, let them high-five. I don't, really th I don't really believe in policing any of that. What I would say, though, is, um, you know, you should also not lose sight of your hum humanity. And you have to find a way to balance these two. It's not so easy after over time, especially when you realize guys are underpaid. Guys maybe took a fight that they shouldn't and it fucked up their whole year and all kinds of stuff. Uh, yeah, it's difficult. But I don't think the way I, I would... I, listen, if anything, it's it's not that there's no comparison or co I should say complaint to make that, hey, could we do this potentially a lot better? Fair enough. We, I'm sure there are ways we could do it better. But I don't think that overly sanitizing it or not showing someone getting KO'd or not showing someone in the cage or showing the other person and celebrating the other person going out is wrong. I don't think that's wrong, to be honest with you. I think it's totally okay. Um, you know, if the broadcast was chiming in, being like, yo, look how he fell. He looks like a bitch or something. Yeah, I think that would be somewhat gratuitous. But celebrating a spectacular KO, I don't really see the issue with it, to be honest with you, especially if you're the guy who did it. Um, but I also don't want 
you know, the medical realities of these things whitewashed either. You got to do both. That's the sport. I heard about the death of the Black Dahlia murder guy. I, I know, I've never listened to Black Dahlia murder. Um, I know who they are, but I've never listened to them. Yeah, someone's asking about it. I'm really sorry. To, I, it's a terrible thing. I guess he was young too. Um, but I, it's not. It's not really a. It's not really a. Uh, it's not really a band I've listened to. I listened to uh, recently Psychroptic. I think it's Psychroptive. What's the name of that band I heard the other day? Um, what was the name of that band? <laughs> uh oh, Godzilla's here. Yo, people like yo. Do you listen to CNN? And I'm like, that's the only CNN I listen to. <laughs> Capone and Noriega. Uh, where is the name of that song that I liked that I thought was pretty good? Oh yeah. Psychroptic. They had a good song that came up on like one of my things. I sort of checked them out. I like them a little bit. Uh, Luke, please go see The Northman. I've seen the ads, bro. I'm about to. I haven't done it yet, but I'm gonna. Luke, what do you make of Rose's corner advice during her fight with Esparza? I struggle to see how an experienced head coach like Whitman could honestly say that Rose was clearly winning the rounds. Yep. Don't agree with that consideration at all. Is this a case of being too rigid with a game plan and not changing things up in response to how the fight is playing out? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks for the amazing content over the years. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to say something. and I, this, Again, this sounds like, oh, here's Luke attacking the fighters. It's not what I'm doing. It's not what I'm doing. I, at times, try to advocate for what I think could benefit them. At times, I try to be honest about things I think that they're doing that are not correct. At times, I try to be as praiseworthy as I can about the many praiseworthy things that they do. I try to be as very, I'm sure I fail at it time to time, but I try to be as down the middle as I possibly can. Let me just say this very clearly. It, it is alarming to me how many fighters, and I suspect coaches, I had a conversation, a little sort of a Twitter back and forth, very uh, very friendly, but I had a Twitter back and forth with um, um, Terrence McKinney about this. And um, a lot of elite fighters do not fully understand the current scoring criteria. And I can't prove this, but my hunch is that a lot of coaches don't fully understand it either. Now, when I say something like that, that sounds a little crazy to some, but it really shouldn't be. That is not me saying that the fighters or the coaches don't understand fighting. That's not my argument. It's not my argument that I understand the scoring criteria better than them. I often have to reference it for work just to catch up. Like, wait, does it say this exactly? But the difference is, for me, while I also don't have it all committed to memory in the way that perhaps even I should, one, I can use it as a reference tool. And two, more importantly, while my job does depend on it, my job does not depend on it in the extreme ways that it impacts fighters. Fighters have and their coaches must understand it um, before fights, in the middle of them, and certainly after them in ways that they clearly and often do not and in ways that inhibit their decision-making process or even their cornering process. If you had a full and complete understanding of the scoring criteria, even if you thought Rose won, just knowing that there wasn't a lot that happened and that makes it difficult for any judge to do the right thing and you don't know what side of the fight... Like, remember, the judges don't sit 1-1-1. One, one, one. They sit almost like a triangle. 
right? They sit at different positions. I know that the octagon is just that, an octagon, but they sit in almost like as far apart from each other, equidistant as they can. They don't have it. They don't. They should not have any means to communicate with one another. Oftentimes, this is done by hand, not electronically. Although some states you can submit an electronic ballot. Again, for folks who may not know, they all sit apart. Once they score a round, they put a round score in, and that is it. It is locked in. There is no editing it after the fact. Nothing doesn't exist anymore. That's the process. So when you understand that if the fight took place over here, what what did that judge see? How the fuck could you even know? You know. So unless something really is super clear, you knocked them down, you had them mounted, you took their back, you nearly armbarred them, like, okay, you had a lot to work with there. Even then, you should be somewhat cautious and tempered with your enthusiasm. But in a round like that, to say that you're winning, given those circumstances, you, you can't, it can't be both. You can't say you have a clear sense of the scoring criteria, not how judges implement it, but the scoring criteria, and then also say you're clearly winning rounds. They are inherently contradictory. So that's the first thing I'd say. The first thing I'd say is, dude, I cannot tell you how many fighters I have talked to in person, on the record, off the record, coaches in person, on the record, off the record, who do not fully know the scoring criteria. How a 10-10 round is scored, how a 10-9 round is scored, 10-8, not a yada, yada. They understand fighting quite well, but that's not what the judges... The judges are not judging who had the best fight. They're judging who did the most damage and the most effective grappling. That's and then how the two effective striking and how it all relates. And again, if they have to aggression, if they have to uh, cage control, right? But that that they're looking for they're looking for action. They're looking for offense. Rose saying something like, you know, I don't get credit for my defense. In the scoring criteria, you don't get credit for it. Re- uh, defense is considered its own reward. What's the reward for slipping a punch? You don't get hit. That's the reward. Does that mean defense is unimportant? Now, they collect stats in defense in basketball, right? How many blocks or steals or something that you had. That's defense that they can measure. But in terms of the score at the end of the fight, do they measure defense? Only if it inhibited the offense in some kind of way. And even then, they don't really measure the defense. In other words... It doesn't mean that because defense isn't written into what counts as um, valuable uh, work that it therefore lacks value. It is tremendously valuable, but it is not tremendously valuable for scoring offense. For scoring offense, it is utterly worthless. (laughs) It is worthless. Um, So that's a big thing that you really, like once you wrap your head around that, like, remember the earlier question about, like, how pretty the foot, he had better footwork. Better footwork for who? Better, better footwork for what? If, you're, if your footwork looks super clean and sharp and you're bouncing and you're nimble and you're not launching any offense and you lose the fight, how is your footwork better? It's prettier. It's cleaner. It's not better. It didn't do shit for you. So, so I, I, I know this sounds crazy. And you're like, well, who's, whose fault is that? Yes. Any person who is a prize fighter, any person who is a coach at the elite level, do they have a responsibility to better know the scoring criteria um, and, and, and understand how that could impact corner work, building strategies, any number of things? Yes, of course that is true. Of course that is true. But I'm telling you guys, like the reality is fighting, it appears to be, here's my experience with it at, at, from my vantage point. Fighting appears to be so consuming to these people, they are one-track minds. I cannot tell you how many times they fighters I've ever interacted with lose track of details, 
can't focus on anything else, miss meetings, miss miss um, interviews or whatever. Like there's, they have to deal with so much already. They don't have a lot of bandwidth for anything else. This is why, to me, if you are in California or New Jersey or someplace where a commission takes itself even remotely seriously and should, maybe even Las Vegas as well or Nevada anyway, um, I think there should be direct outreach to the major gyms. This is going to be the. It's not going to help everybody. That's not going to help everyone. It's not going to make every bit of difference. But to me, if the commission was taking a proactive role, and you could say that's not, they shouldn't have to. Listen, there's lots of things people have to do in life that they shouldn't have to that still make it a good and effective idea. To me, it seems like there should be much more of an effort from the commission to directly go to the commission, not to the media, although going to the media is helpful, not to the promoter, although going to the promoter can be helpful, directly to the gyms, directly to the fighters in that sense, and making sure... Do you know? Can we teach a seminar on scoring? Do you really understand the difference between ten ten and ten nine? And I also think you know we have independent classes on this kind of thing. Like you could take John McCarthy's command course. Um, honestly, to get a corner license, I wouldn't mind. Be, I wouldn't mind. Let's say I'll put it this way: entertaining the idea that there should be a. I, I wouldn't mind a certification process that's a little bit more rigorous than do you have a pulse and not COVID. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I would be curious to know if there's room. And uh, this is something you have to think more about and talk to more regulators about. Um, but I would I would imagine that there should be some more consideration given to the idea that, like, if you want to be in this role, you should know how these fights are scored. Not not. And if you ask them, oh, of course I know how fights are scored because I know so much about fighting. But knowing a lot about fighting is very helpful for knowing a lot about judging. But it is not the same. They are separate skills. They are separate jobs that value in many cases, the same things. In many cases, very different things. And in many cases, where um, the margin for error is very, very slim. So do I think that like, you know, there's a question of whatever strategy they came up with. And again, I'm going to go back to it. It did sound to me like Whitman and Barry were kind of contradicting each other a little bit in that corner. But if they were both on board with the idea that she was clearly winning rounds... You can't make that claim and also say you really, truly understand the scoring criteria. Not possible. Not possible. If you really did, then you would be profoundly worried about the lack of offense. Because that's the only thing they're going to be looking for. That's the only thing. Hola, Luke. Justin Gaethje fought... Uh, sorry, I've already been over that one. Here we go. Luke, quality UFC cards, in my opinion, seem to have taken a downturn this year. Dude, April was busy with a lot of stuff that wasn't all that great. Uh, with more talent than ever, why do you think this is happening? Because the UFC is... So, th- so there's a lot of things. They have to put on enough fights to meet all of their goals. Some of their goals might be to make sure that they have enough weeks to give to ESPN... Some of their goals are going to be making sure that divisions move along enough and that enough fights take place to make that happen. Some of them are going to be, uh, we want to get into certain markets, right? We have to have enough shows that we can put this together. We can, um, And to get in certain markets, we have to have to have enough of a certain kind of fighter, right? I mean, they've always had British fighters, but, you know, let's, let's imagine a world where there wasn't a lot two or three years ago. They'd have to work on building a roster and finding and giving them fights, and some are going to work and some are not. So there's a lot of factors that go into how many fights they want to have and how many fighters they want to have. I also think that they put on extra weight, so to speak, in terms of their roster to make it more difficult for their competitors to do it. Because there's, again, 
there's a lot of people who will watch like low level UFC fights that won't like that. That's the thing to me. It's like you'll watch a low level UFC fight, but you won't watch a high level Bellator fight. Like getting back to my soccer comparison, dude, are we really going to say that like, okay, you could make the argument about a bad La Liga game. Maybe even then I wouldn't really make it say it's true, but like, what game is Madrid going to have even at their worst where they're still not like shit tons better than DC United or any other MLS team? Like there's, 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 I mean, again, everyone's going to have a collapse and there. Some people might have an inspired thing, but you see what I mean? Like in MMA, it's actually a lot more different where you can have guys in Bellator who are clearly not really better than the, the bottom level UFC guy. They might be better than the top level UFC guy. Bellator is not going to have very many of them. But they're going to have some of them. And so when you get to this brand consciousness where, like, I only watch this brand, you can make a claim that you're watching that brand for the quality that it has at a certain end. But if you're watching the lesser end stuff and you're not watching that, what you can't say is what you're interested in is the best MMA because you're literally foregoing it for something lesser than. So maybe that's a better answer to the initial question. But in this case... uh, Yes, so that's why they're having these. They're not having these because they have a... Yes, there is a... I would say that like when you talk about the UFC level, what does that mean? Clearly, it means inside the top 15 for the most part, inside um, each weight class, maybe inside top 25, depending on the weight class. That's about what UFC level means. That's not quite. That's approximate. There's going to be holes in that definition as well, but that's you know sort of a functioning way to think about it. Top 20 in the world in your weight class, something like that, so 25, 25. Um, and so, like, they're clearly well outside of that, like, well outside of that. But that's because they're not trying to solve for making sure they have that level of consistent quality every show. They're trying to make sure they have some part of that as an identifying feature of every show, right? Like, even on a bad card, Chito Vera versus Rob Font is fucking A-list, right? That's a tremendous fight. Um, but the rest of it could be whatever. It's because they're trying to solve for or other problems. We have to have enough to give to ESPN, to Combate, Combache, to make sure we have enough to our Asian partners, who, whatever they might need. We have to make sure that we can keep these divisions moving, and we have to have enough to do that. I want to make sure that they don't get these guys, so I'm going to sign them up. Right? It's got all those things and plus more that goes into it. So if you're wondering why the cards are low, they're they're low by design. By design. Okay, let's take a look at your paid questions such that there are any, and I will answer them. Again, you're not under any obligation to leave it. Every time I do this, there's always someone like, I can't believe I've got to pay to ask questions. You don't have to. It's only a function of if you want to, and it's good because I, I only have, I paid today uh, rent one more time in my office. I only have two months left on that. Um, I'm going to put this out there now. Othello and I had a meeting about it. We talked about it. We were right to work together. And we were right to try to find an office. I don't think that office is the right one. And what I think I might do is, um, oh, hold on, it's my it's my friend Alex. Yo, dude, I'm in the middle of a podcast. Can I call you back? All right, I'll call you right back. Uh, here we go. So the point I'm trying to make is, um, I'm going to be looking. I don't. Don't send me a resume because I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to look at it. Uh, I'm looking for a video editor probably in about two or three months. Two or three months. So you can remember this conversation for later. I think I would rather bring some stuff back home 
reorganize the house a little bit, and then uh, put money into a video editor rather than to a place that I have to like retrofit for my needs. The house is kind of already fit, or at least I, I, it's, it's easier for me to do it here. Um, and I could put the money towards a video editor, which means I can then free myself up to do all the things that I want to do. Okay. Let's do it. Jesus, are there a shitload of these? Yeah, there are. Okay. Uh, someone says, your ins your uh, insistence on pronouncing Israel's name correctly is appreciated. It seems like white people <laughs> treat mispronouncing our names as a badge of honor. There's a reason Izzy explains how to pronounce it. Well, I don't know if it's white or black, because I can tell you I've heard a lot of people mispronounce my wife's name irrespective of race. But I can say that, um, again, going back to like lashing out at Brian, and that, that was inappropriate, but... Um, you know, you're all you can do is just try to do the best you can and make a good faith effort at it. That's it, man. That's it. Uh, which next fight for Charles would be more difficult? Islam in Abu Dhabi in October, Connor at MSG in November, or a super fight with Volk in Australia? Well, all of them are tough, but I'm going to say Islam in Abu Dhabi. That's the toughest, for sure. P.S. You said Bashir perfect last time. You're not the first Bashir I've ever met. Uh, when scoring a fight live, you know, and my live scoring is not great. I can admit that fully. I, I feel like I can cobble together a pretty good case after the fact, but live, I don't, I don't have the best live scoring. Do you use any type of notes or shorthand to keep track of what is going on in the round, or do you simply rely on memory? Yeah, I don't. I think you probably should take notes. I have seen judges take notes. Um, like an actual real judge, I've seen them take notes. But for me, when I'm scoring, I typically work off memory, typically. And you got to remember, some states have a side monitor that the judge can use, some don't, right? So that's going to affect what they see. Um, where Again, where does the, what part of the fight or what part of the real estate of the cage does the fight take place and how does that affect sight lines and, and everything? Like all of that plays a role. All of that plays a role. Luke, if Oliveira beats Islam for the title, do you think he surpasses Habib as the GOAT? Dean List, uh, not Dean Lister, I'm sorry. Dean Thomas asked me the same question. Here is my answer to Dean. Here's my answer to you. Habib's entire run is undefeated, which I know there is some controversy about the T-Bell fight or whatever, but the whole thing is undefeated. That means that every fight he ever had in that weight class, he was perfect, and he did it for a much longer amount of time, like a very, very long time, including at the championship level. What I would say is, if Oliveira comes back and does that, then his championship run is better than Habib's. And of course, if he keeps going at lightweight and then wins a bunch of fights, then we have to revisit the conversation. But given the totality of his career, I would not say that he's had a better run. But I would say that his 155 title reign would surpass Habib's, or either, either match or surpass Habib's. Now, the losing of the title can also affect it, but... You know, it wouldn't put them far apart. They would be, they would be at a bare minimum, I think, fairly commensurate wherever you come down in that debate. So, he's knocking on the door. He's knocking on the door to be sure. What would people say if the fight was in Brazil and Justin missed weight by half a pound with the scale issues done by the Brazilian Commission? Someone wrote World War Three. In my opinion, are you asking, like, are you suggesting that there's an American bias? Um, that would favor the American in this particular context. Yeah, it's probably true. But that, that that argument works both ways. 
you were basically claiming that like if the circumstances were reversed, you didn't say that like the commission was wrong. You just said there'd be a bigger freak out if the Americans saw this. Yeah, there might. So that might tell you to temper the, some of the Brazilian freak out around Charles or conversely, whatever their nationality, people who are big fans of Charles, some of their freak out. Like here's what it appears happened. The actual scale they used to weigh in, the official scale, that one was was um, that one was properly measured. I don't think that one's wrong. That one's probably right. They got bad info off the unofficial scale. What you have to ask yourself is, who fucked with the unofficial scale, and what does it mean that people made a lot of readings off of something that unreliable and that unofficial? And I know I get back to my previous comment, which was, you know, hey, these fighters are they they have, they have a one track mind, they mess up a lot of stuff. Yes, you need to facilitate them. I think if you're going to be in those roles, you don't want there to have, be one where there's a big gap between them. But what I would say is, like, you know, also there needs to be some some responsibility about um, what baseline measurements you're taking and how you're getting them and the integrity and reliability of them. You can't just rely on these other forces to make sure that it, it gets done in a, in a, you know, without no questions asked manner. Like pretty clearly at this point, you have to do it. Also, I would say that, um, well, I'm not going to sit here and say Arizona's commission's good, but they're pretty bad. So I'll leave that part alone. I get this question a lot, actually, because um, I've got good tattoos and I got some bad ones. I got more bad ones than I have good ones, although I'm going to get them covered up. But Luke, I want to get my first ever tattoo soon. I want to get your tips about choosing a design placement and any other advice you might have. I cannot help you choose a design, and I definitely cannot help you choose placement, but I can give you a couple of tips. Here's the first thing I would say. Number one, whatever your idea is, you have to realize that most likely it fits into a particular style of tattooing. Tattooing is not one thing. If you go to somebody who just do, does tattoos, now if they're really small and they're flash tattoos or whatever, that's sort of okay. But tattoo artists in general, and again, they can be, you know, they can do some different things. But in general, what I, what I recommend is whatever your style is that you want. I, want. I want a black and gray. I want lettering. I want, neo, I want you know, I want a cartoon rabbit or whatever. You got to figure out what style is that. Is it black and gray, neo-traditional, whatever. Then you need to find someone who is a master at that particular style and then take that design to them or that design idea to them. That's what you need to do. Don't just roll up to your local tattoo shop and be like, oh, tattoos are like haircuts. It doesn't really matter you know, what, what, what shape of head comes in. It could be a male client. It could be a female client, although there is some differentiation about who cuts male and female hair. But you know, it's like, oh, just all these different people like, hey, oh, you want a haircut flat top, you want a shaved head, you want whatever, you know, I just cut hair. It, it's it's not like that. At least it's not like that at the places that are good. What you want is somebody who you have to set up an appointment with. Again, there are places called flash tattoos where you can just get one off the wall and they accept walk-ins. That's fine too. There are good places that do walk-ins. But as a general rule, especially for your first time, say out loud what you want and figure out what style that is. Find someone who is good at that style Make an appointment, have a consultation with them, check out the shop if it's nearby, have a look at it, um, and then go through with the process. If you're looking for numbing cream, I have a great one to recommend to you. You can go to TattooNumbingCream.com, but that's not my favorite. My favorite is something that I got off of, um, um, well, it's just straight up from fucking China. It's called <laughs> TKTX. It's, it's... 
It's like four times as strong as lidocaine. Do I have some here? I think I do. Let's see. Yes. As a matter of fact, I do. This. This is what you need. TKTX. Because folks always ask me, do tattoos hurt? Every tattoo hurts. They always hurt. They never feel good. What does it feel like? It feels like liquid fire. It's about what it feels like. It feels like a bee sting that just won't stop. Some uh, tattoo artists are heavy-handed. Some are not so heavy-handed. Um, a lot use different protocols. So what I would recommend is, and there are ways to use this. You want to put this on about an hour before you go and then cover it in saran wrap. You need to get some numbing cream. TKTX. This is super fucking strong. If you're trying to find placement to minimize pain for your first tattoo, think of everything as middle and end. So here in the middle of your arm or the middle of the arm or the middle of your thigh or the middle of your calf, this part will not hurt so bad. The wrist, however, or near the elbow is going to hurt like a motherfucker. This one, I did not get numbing cream on this one, so I just thug it out. And by the way, this is the only tattoo I've ever used numbing cream on. Um, I just kind of thug it out. It hurt. It hurt real bad. It sucked. It was not fun. I don't recommend it. Zero out of ten. It sucked. Um, so you're going to want numbing cream as well. And what I would also say, and here's my last bit of advice. You probably don't want a giant tattoo for your first tattoo because this one took about six or seven hours. And after the four-hour mark, you'll see that they constantly, um, they're constantly wiping the excess ink off of you. This is the thing that happens like every you know 10 seconds in a tattooing process, 10 or 20 seconds or whatever. And, I, and usually it feels really good because they're just get, you know they're putting, they're putting spray on there and they're wiping it. But, but after four hours, it just began to burn and it actually hurt. Um, so you don't want something too big that, you know, is going to cause you pain and you, you know, it's a shock to the system to see something big on your, on your body like that. But I, what I would say is I caution people very strongly out of getting first tattoos that are like really small. Don't do that. Get a, I would call small ish to medium ish first tattoo. And the reason why is not just because. I think people end up getting small tattoos and not regretting it, but it doesn't really solve the itch. So they end up getting another one and that ends up being the other one. So now they have an excess tattoo in a certain way. What I would say is it actually helps the person doing your tattoo. A lot of people think, oh, first tattoo, I'm going to make it small in case I don't like it. it. I can kind of hide it or it's indiscreet or whatever. But the reality is you're actually making the chances of the tattoo being good even smaller because they have to get these really fine details. And you can find people who can do really fine details, like people who are like masters of single needle black and gray work, like they can do it. But it's actually when you blow up the tattoo a little bit that and the, and the artist can see it, that's when they can get all of the line work properly. That's when they can get all of the shading in there. That's when they can really get that deep saturation on the colors that they have to get. It needs to be big enough for them to see it. When it's all that small, like people like, imagine you wanted to get a quarter the size of a quarter tattooed on you. And imagine it was this big. Dude, it's going to be hard to get like a, an accurately looking presidential face on the quarter. Quarters is just a, a coin in America. That's 25 cents. But imagine like for whatever reason, this would not be a pretty tattoo, but imagine you blew it up. Now you had someone who knew how to craft faces, but he's got so much more space to work with. He can make that face or she can make that face significantly more detailed and accurate and real to life. They can put the nuances with just the right amount of shading and color and shaping. So what I would argue against is 
don't get a small tattoo. You can get a smallish, medium-sized tattoo. Probably don't want to get a large one either. But those are my recommendations. You want some numbing cream. You want to know the style. You want someone who's an expert in that style. Make an appointment. Have a consultation. Place it. If you're looking to minimize pain anyway, put it somewhere in the middle of the, you know, the, the section of the body. And... Uh, and make it big enough that the artist can really lean into it and do their best work. Don't put the artist at a handicap because you're scared you might not like the tattoo later. If you're really feeling that way about the tattoo, don't get it. Just don't get it, you know. And again, I'm going to say it. Do all tattoos hurt? They all hurt. Just accept it. <laughs> Just don't be a wimp. They're not fun, but this will help a lot. You will feel a lot less. You can basically get through it, no problem. Oh, Last piece of advice, get a good night's sleep the night before and have a huge meal before you go in. Do not go in on an empty stomach. Do not go in without hydration, especially if it's your first one. It shit is going to shock you. It's going to be more painful than you realize, but you'll get used to it. But at first, it's going to shock you, and I've seen people pass out. Don't be that guy. Go have a big old fat burger or whatever it is you want to eat. I would recommend eating clean, but if that's what you want, go have a burger have a lot of water, and walk in there, good night's sleep, properly hydrated. And you're like, oh, that's a lot for a tattoo. Dude, do you want a good tattoo experience or do you not? You are sewing ink into your skin permanently. If it was up to me, I would want my tattoo artist to be as ready and have as much information and as good a circumstance to do their best job. And I would want to put myself to make sure I had a positive experience, whether it's my only tattoo I ever get or not. To minimize pain, minimize discomfort, have the most amount of fun, and be the happiest with the work that comes out of it. Those are my recommendations to you. There you go. Any tips to increase fluency in speech? Bitch, if you got them, tell me. <laughs> I, I, I work with Spanish a lot, just given the circumstance, but my Spanish is not good. It's, and I don't want anyone to be under the assumption that it is. It's not good. I said this before. Here's what I do. We watch a lot of stuff in Spanish. I, obviously, my wife is just, you know, nonstop with it. And um, I talk to my daughter in it. She talks to me in it. And then I do like 30 minutes a night of um, Rosetta Stone. But I don't really have, I don't, you know, if you've got good tips on fluency, I, I would love to hear it. Do you think Robert Downey Jr.'s career high point is done after his role as Tony Stark? Guys, I remember when Robert Downey Jr. was in handcuffs and jumpsuits for his drug problem. The fact that he even made it to Tony Stark and that role is by itself a fucking miracle. You guys don't even, half of you don't even remember that. Dude, Robert Downey Jr. used to be an epic fuck up and he was on the news constantly for drug this and arrested that and citation this and blah 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 that he dude he was a like turning into iron man you want to see somebody who rescued his career it's robert downey jr so like oh did he peak guys <laughs> he wasn't even supposed to be here did he peak that's a, i mean that's an incredible peak i think people think about high level grapplers as if they each have some video game like high level stat, but the actual skills they use to dominantly grapple are so different. What's the reason? Wait, say it again. I think people think about high level grapplers as if they each have some video game like high level stat. 
but the actual skills they use to dominantly grapple are so different. What's the, I don't know if I understand the question. He paid, so I don't fully understand it. So what I'm going to say is, for a steelier, steelier, email me, lukethomasnews at gmail.com. Because I don't understand your question, and I don't know how to answer it because I don't. But because you gave a donation, I would like to do something. So please email me, lukethomasnews, and I'm sorry. I just I don't really understand the question. Uh, Josh with the weekly contribution. Thank you. Is Charles a better version of a prime RDA? Uh, I would say RDA is more durable. And, uh, you know, different body proportions. RDA is more durable. I would also say RDA is a better kicker. Maybe that's not quite true. I would say he's a better kicker, but I would say the rest of that's probably true. Well, Islam is a worthy fight. The DC Josh Thompson, a.k.a. Cartel, is pushing him hard to the point of oversell. Also, he's dodged RDA and wants to dodge Dariush. I don't know about that, but what I would say is uh, he, didn't, he didn't dodge RDA. I mean, let's be real about that. I, I understand he said it and then didn't take it, but we'll see what happens with Dariush. Uh, someone says, I'm the one... Who submitted the question about UFC MMA fan question? I'm just busting your balls either way. I've been a fan for since TLTS. Thank you, sir. And earlier, and the CFL is the Canadian Football League. Ah, yeah, I'm definitely gonna pay attention. Um, check your TikTok. All right. How do you maintain your drive and mental acuity despite partaking in marijuana? I'm an infrequent user because I fear it will make me lazy, complacent, and mentally lethargic. What advice would you offer for a responsible marijuana use? Well, uh, one, you need to know your limits on it. Like a lot of people, like when they first get their license on it or they just start using it or whatever, depending on the circumstance, they're like every day, they're like, oh, I had 400 milligrams today. Like, well, what the fuck are you doing? Like, first of all, you're going to develop a tolerance to it, which we're not going to like. That's the first thing I'd warn against. And then the second thing I'd warn against is like, do you want to just be zoned out all the time? Yeah, listen, sometimes it's fine to be just completely zoned out. You know, like, I get it. Like, you know, you want to just make the world kind of be quiet for a second. I, I, you know, chronically, that's a problem. But once in a while, I don't really see the problem with it. However, if you're talking about daily use, dude, it should make your life better, not worse. So if you feel like it's lazy, number one, you could experiment with different strains or different times of the day to use. Um, also, I have found that like if I use it on a walk, not like smoke it and then go walk, but like start walking and then smoke, it doesn't reduce my energy at all. In fact, it only fuels creativity. And again, that can partly be time of day, strain or whatever. Um, so I also kind of know my limits, like what times of the day are good for me, what times are bad. Um, you know, what, if I have a gummy, it's it, dude, they're measured by milligrams. I know exactly how much I can have and what kind of feature it has. Even the Delta eights, I know exactly how much I can have and what kind of, what it does to me, how it's going to affect my appetite and everything. I've kind of, you know, you have to kind of try things, see what works and what doesn't. But like the real modus operandi is I'm not, listen, People use drugs for all kinds of reasons. But the real reason people use drugs chronically in safe ways for the most part over time is because this makes your life better. But that means that there have to be, I'm going to use this term again, there have to be intelligent use cases. This means you have to know when and where and what kinds and what it does for you and what it doesn't, what the upsides are, what the downsides, what the positives, what the negatives are. And then you have to make a calculated call about how to boost these things. It takes some time. It takes some experimentation. Not everything's going to work. But I've got enough now where I've got some intelligent use cases that really help me. And, like, you know, some are more obvious than others. You go to a ball game, you go to a concert, you can do whatever you want. But, you know, like, if I'm hanging out with my daughter, I do not do that high. <laughs> like, I just don't. I don't ever do that high. Um, because 
I do fear like that might interfere with my capacity to be present in the moment and to take care of her. Maybe she gets, you know, something happens to her. I have to get behind the wheel of a car and drive, blah, blah, blah. But when she goes to bed, I know exactly what my regimen is. If I have a free time in the afternoon on a Tuesday or Thursday and I want to go for a walk, I know exactly how much I can use. I don't watch him. I, I, I've, I've tried it, you know, because I've definitely had a few cocktails watching fights and it hasn't really affected me. With fighting, I think it does actually. It doesn't really, it doesn't really work for me if I want to make very... Uh, my, the best kind of deci- the best kinds of assessments that I can. I don't think it really aids me, at least not in real time. But what can happen after the fact is, um, I could smoke and then go down a YouTube uh, rabbit hole and then find something interesting, and then that leads to another idea. I-, I want it to fuel the creative process. I want it to find doors that otherwise sobriety would not open for me. Um, and I want it to give me a calming presence. You have to, A, it may not do that for you under any circumstance, or you may have to find the very right ones. But again, it should not be an anchor on your life. It should not be some kind of detriment to it. It should not be a thing where people are like, oh, you really got to stop. It should be a thing that you can manage such that you can get intelligent use cases out of it. That's what you're looking for. It's like with steroids. There are people who use steroids and they do dumb shit and they fuck their lives up. Not to mention hair growth or acne, or I'm sorry, hair loss or acne or liver damage or whatever. Um, forget about people. Not, not, forget people who are even in, in, in tested sports. I mean, just the average guy at your gym. But dude, are, are there intelligent steroid use cases? There's a million of them. There's millions of them. There are people who know exactly what they're doing and they do it in a way to improve their lives along the way in which they want their lives to be improved without all of these negative health outcomes because they know what they're doing. That's that's true of any drug. Marijuana is no exception. Now, some drugs are going to be more dangerous than others. There's going to be a fewer set of intelligent use cases, you know. But in the case of marijuana, like, there are a lot of intelligent use cases. Uh, Rose is receiving the majority of fan backlash over Carla, despite the latter having a history of similar fights, e.g. versus Watterson. Is this just a popularity issue, fan dislike of Barry, a bigotry of low expectations on Carla's part, growing tired of the same champion. Probably there might be some dislike of Pat Barry. I don't think that's the driving one. The driving one is that they basically saw Rose as the one who could win that, the superior one of the two, and that Rose did some kind of, not in, in their view, did some kind of nonsense and then tried to make excuses for it. So it's like, you were the only one who could make this happen. You didn't. And then you made excuses for it afterwards. Like, it's that that I think that they're reacting to. Are guys like Hooker, Connor, Justin, and Dustin who never had strong wrestling roots or have gotten away from those roots a disadvantage in modern MMA? Will they ever be champs again? Hooker, Connor, Justin, and Dustin. Well, or have gotten away from those roots. I don't think Justin's gotten away from those roots. I just don't think that they've... Like, there's been a limit to how valuable they've had. And dude, Dustin, the amount of hours he's trained, and Connor he's trained, and Hooker he's trained in wrestling is probably a lot more than fans realize. It's just hard to... Ma- it's hard to make up for that in your 20s when people have been wrestling since they were 8. Um, will they be champs again? Any of those guys... Well, I don't know about Hooker, but any of those other guys could be champs again. Even Connor, depending on the matchmaking. If you were a fighter, what color... Well, what would be your trunk color and fighting style? I, you know, I'd probably be like a, if you know, we're talking in a world that is utterly imaginary. But if that was the case, something like Habib, and I always like Mike Tyson's look. He always had the black trunks, no socks, black shoes. Obviously, we don't have shoes in MMA, but like just solid black trunks, that would be my thing. Does Randy Couture's MMA style work today? It probably it might work better today than it did before. 
not all the pieces of it, but the underhooking, double underhooking, lateral drop, that kind of game against the wall. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. Or, no, not exactly what he did, but a lot of the things that they pioneered sort of readapted for modern MMA. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Which aspect of MMA makes the sport the most difficult to cover for you? The greedy business tactics of the UFC, this person writes. The swath of sleazy fighters, agents, and hangers-on. Um, as you guys well know, I don't really fit in in the industry very neatly. I don't have a lot of natural allies, and I don't think I'll like a lot of the other folks in terms of what I believe, um, either about the sport or outside of it. So the only thing that I can really point to is the stuff that makes it hard for me to cover is... Um, at first, it was how different everyone was, but I got over that. Now I'm going to say it's the unevenness of the trade. The trade between what they make and what they sacrifice. The unevenness of that trade is the difficulty for me. Uh, with fights like Cowboy and Lazan, what other throwback matchups would you like to see? So, uh, so some veterans get some spotlight. I don't really care to see any of them. Uh, I'm not here to say that someone who is more senior in their career doesn't have a place in the UFC necessarily or that you have to dislike them or like them. But like, what do I want in terms of throwback? Let me ask it again. What other throwback matchups would you like to see? Yeah, none. Uh, political leaning. Best way to describe it would be uh, New Deal left, something like that. Um, I have been very persuaded by the idea that that uh, inequality is more than bad because of what it does to the people on the unequal side of things. I think inequality is a, um, or at least I should say, um, inequal. There's, there's always going to be inequality, but um, there can be pernicious levels of inequality that tear at the fabric of society, quite frankly, and the body politic and. Uh, I think that's what should be avoided. I, I have been majorly influenced to think that. Um, what happened to Jordan Breen? I know he's still in Canada. I found you after he stopped covering the sport years back. MMA media are such sycophants now, and he's missed. His knowledge was top tier, and it's strange he disappeared. Um, I have heard some things. I'm not sure what I'm at liberty to say, but uh, I know he's still around. I know he's still in Canada. Um, I don't know if he's in Toronto anymore, but um, I wish he'd come back too. He is, I, I echo every sentiment uh, you have, and I wish he'd, I wish he'd come back too. He, he made all of us better, quite frankly. Um, he's, he's, very, he's very talented, exceptionally talented. Uh, and he's missed, no doubt about it. There's some other donations here, thank you so much. Any book uh, recommendations on the history of combat sports? Ooh. It's the one I always recommend, the judo book, Falling Hard. You can get it on paperback. That's the name of the book, Falling Hard. It's just about judo and a little bit of sambo, but it's it's one of the most well-written books I've ever read. A Fighter's Heart, A Fighter's Mind by Sam Sheridan um, is also good. Uh, which one came first, A Fighter's Heart? I think that's right. Whichever one of the two came first, he tells a lot of the stories and the origins of certain martial arts, so you can look into that too. Again, someone asking about the Black Dahlia murder. I get it's a terrible story, but I don't I don't know much about the band. I'm sorry. What fight would be more fun to watch? Charles Islam or Habib Tony? Probably Habib Tony. 
But Charles Islam would hardly be some terrible thing to watch. Is it stupid to train BJJ with an umbilical hernia? Buddy, if I knew what the fuck an umbilical hernia was, I'd tell you. But you are asking. It's like, dude, people ask a lot of questions there, and I'm, ha- and I'm happy to give you any answer that I can that I think might be reasonably helpful. But, like, fellas, I'm not even. Not only am I not a doctor, I, I don't even know what aisle of shit is in what CVS. Like, I'm the wrong guy to, to ask about stuff like this. I, I would really strongly caution you to ask a medical professional to get the kind of answer you're looking for. I know that's not the – that doesn't help you in the short term right now. But uh, also, I would just say as a general rule, if you have any kind of hernia, you might want to heal that shit. <laughs> but again, I don't know what an umbilical hernia is. So I'm going to leave that alone. Okay. I am going to thank you guys for watching so much. I really appreciate it. You're the best. This will go up on podcast as soon as I can download it and put it up tonight. And um, yeah, uh, all kinds of good stuff. Thank you so much. MK tomorrow, 11 a.m. in the East. Uh, we will have a post fight stuff from BC tomorrow as well. So be on the lookout for that. Okay. All right. For uh, uh, Bellator Paris, I believe. And I think he's going to have a Charlo Castaño post-fight as well. I don't know if I'm going to do a UFC one. Probably not. All right, but I do appreciate you guys watching. Thank you so much, and until next time.